A pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program. He is a lecturer and adjunct professor in the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Ontario. He is also the author of this, Rhetoric Check, Parliament Wasn't Toxic. Justin Trudeau just wants a majority. Eugene Lang joins us. Professor Lang, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. Uh, Good morning. It's good to be with you. Well, it's nice to have you with us, sir. And I want to just uh, jump down into the article you wrote because I'd like our our listeners to know a little bit about you before we talk about what you've written. And you talk about uh, having had the privilege of working for cabinet ministers, Eugene, in both majority and minority governments from 1993 all the way through to 2006. Tell us about your experience in Ottawa, please. Yeah, well, I when I left uh, graduate school in the early 90s, I ended up working in the Cretchen government for uh, a very senior minister in that government named Herb Gray. Oh, died sure. Over years ago. Mm-hmm. So I worked for Herb Gray for about six years in his office, and I subsequently worked for two other cabinet ministers uh, in the Cretchen government and then in the Martin minority government. And I also worked as a public servant for part of that time in the Department of Finance. So I worked in majority governments and minority governments. I saw them from the inside, from the inside of ministers' offices, as well as the bureaucracy. And there are differences, obviously, uh, in minority and majority governments from the inside that, that people often don't appreciate enough. And that's kind of what I was trying to reflect a bit on in that article. All right. And that's uh, thank you for so succinctly organizing that little bio, because it really does help us to understand the the uh, viewpoint that you take on this, because it's definitely an insider's view. And so now that uh, we, we understand you, you've seen from the inside looking out the inner workings of both minority and majority governments, you're saying that there's an enormous difference. And we know that, Eugene. But from an inside point of view, Clearly, a majority is is the fast track. It's the freeway. It's you own everything. But a minority situation, I would think, works better for the country. What's your take on all of this? Well, there's a, a long debate about that among historians and others. Uh, many people will point to the Lester Pearson minority governments in the early to middle 1960s as the most productive governments we've had maybe in our history, or mm-hmm. certainly since the end of the Second World War. They brought in, of course, some of the major policies and pieces of legislation that we still have to this day, including things like the Canada Pension Plan, the beginnings of Medicare, uh, and so on. So the lesson there is in minority governments, you can get big things done historically. Even the Paul Martin minority government that I was part of, everybody forgets because it was only around for about two years, uh, did get some significant things done. Uh, So it's not... It's not that minorities can't serve the country well and get things done. Mm-hmm. History would suggest that they can. But if you're working in minority governments, the tensions and the stresses of minority minority government as compared to majority government are different. And the accountabilities are more robust. And right. that's fundamentally what it comes down to to me. Minority governments just force more accountability into a system system of parliamentary government that we have that has the way it's evolved doesn't have a lot of accountability in it really when you're in a majority situation because because of the rigid party discipline our system has which is different than what's in the united kingdom by Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. we probably have have the most rigid system of party discipline of any westminster democracy on the face of the earth agreed 
so so when and power is very concentrated as we all know in the prime minister and his office his or her office you put all those things together and in the majority government the ministers and the prime minister in particular can pretty much do whatever they want absolutely uh with not a lot of accountability in between elections which is four years or even five years mm-hmm. uh in canada in minority government the government, the, the executive, the cabinet, the prime minister, they have to have a different mindset about, about accountability because they can potentially lose votes of confidence in the House of Commons. Investigations and studies can be teed up in parliamentary committees of their conduct, which we've seen during the Trudeau government. Mm-hmm. It would never happen. It would never happen in a majority government. Trust me on that. It would not happen because the government in a majority controls those committees. All they those chair yeah. almost all of them, and they have a majority on them. Well, that's not the case in a minority. So you can see how that would put a lot more. So, frankly, the workload is heavier. The stresses are heavier. There's always the threat of a possible election happening either by mistake. uh, And that has happened to the Clark minority government basically fell in 1979 because of a mistake, Mm -hmm. counting error in the House, uh, or because you're just voted out on a confidence motion. Uh, because the opposition parties have lost confidence. And that's happened, you know, to three minority governments over the last uh, 42 years. It's very interesting that we're spending as much time talking about minority governments this morning as we are. The outcome of this very much undecided election uh, is thought by many to be leaning towards another minority situation, albeit for whom is yet to be determined by the voters of Canada. Would you be at all surprised, Eugene, if we ended up with another minority after this $600 million unnecessary exercise? No, in fact, I'd be I would be surprised if one of these par- parties uh, ends up with a majority. Based on what I see in the polling evidence that's come out through the last two or three weeks, and you know, kind of a gut feeling I have as well, which isn't worth much. But if you look at the polling evidence, um, it's really hard to see how any party with thirty-one to thirty-three percent of the vote nationally. Um, I mean, it's never happened. Mm-hmm. I think the I think the lowest vote per, vote percentage we've seen federally that's generated a majority government is around thirty seven percent, which uh, Mr. Kretchen got in nineteen ninety seven to achieve a very slim majority government. You might remember that it was mm-hmm. a re- reduced majority from what he had before, and I think it was around thirty seven and a half percent of the national popular vote. So it's hard to see how, unless one of these parties can break through in the last week or so and get up about five points from where they seem to be in most of the polls, because this is one area where the polls all seem to agree. All the pollsters across the country seem to come up with the basic, basically the same result. Yeah. Um, you know, in that range of 30 to 33, unless one of those parties can get up to about 38 or 39, it's hard for me to see how anybody forms a majority. I yeah, mean, that's that's certainly been the historical pattern anyway. Yeah, and I, I'm curious also, uh, as you mentioned, some of the accomplishments during the uh, Pearson versus Stephen Baker minority that was oh so colorful and oh so productive, and other minority governments. You point to the Martin government uh, in the uh, in in uh, recent times, more recent times, as having uh, the possibility to in fact accomplish significant things in the current minority government of Mr. Trudeau, have any such accomplishments been noted? 
Well, I think the big thing, obviously, that the Trudeau government has had to deal with is not not something anybody anticipated when the last election happened in the fall of 2019, which is to deal with the pandemic. Yes. Uh, So whatever agenda they had that they ran on in 2019, a lot of that got sidetracked because rightfully so they had to focus on on the on the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the role of the federal government in that. They still got things done from their platform from 2019, I believe, but really the focus, the overwhelming focus of the government has been on that issue of, of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. there they've got, I think they've done some very major things. I mean, and you may not agree that they're the right thing to do, but it's hard to argue that they weren't major things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they passed some of, some of the most consequential fiscal policy measures to help people and businesses get through the pandemic that we've ever seen in Canadian history. And it's generated the largest budget deficit, by the way, that we've seen since the Second World War. True. And they didn't get that done on their own Mm -hmm. because all that fiscal policy stuff had to be passed through Parliament. So somebody had to support them, and they did get support. They got support from the NDP, and they, in some cases, got support from the other parties as well. So there were some big achievements made through this minority parliament where I think parties rightfully kind of put their own self-interest and partisan interests aside, to some degree at least, to try and help get through the pandemic and do what's in the public interest. Uh, Joining us from Queen's University in Ontario, Professor Eugene Lang from the School of Policy Studies. Professor Lang has written a piece at theconversation.com entitled, Rhetoric Check. Parliament wasn't toxic. Justin Trudeau just wants a, a majority. And Eugene, uh, it's interesting with this uh, this unnecessary election. $500 million is typically the cost of any Canadian election. It's an extra $100 million this time around just to make the process uh, a little safer for those of us who vote. I did notice at the advance poll yesterday, and it's likely to be the same all the way through, that instead of two people when you go into your polling place and you've got your poll number and you line up, now there's only one person. So the process is just that much slower. You you wait your turn. You go up to the polling person behind their plexiglass and you submit your, your voter card and your photo ID. That person finds you on the list with the ruler and the pen and they write, they stroke you off and then they write you up and they give you your ballot. You go away, fill it out and nothing happens until you come back, hand your ballot to that person, uh, she rips off the receipt, you put it in the thing, and off you go. Uh, and so because of the COVID requirements, the process this year is going to be that much slower. My question to you, sir, as a veteran of the process many, many times over, what kind of inhibitor do you think COVID is going to be to the Canadian voter? Well, that's a really good question, and, and I don't think we know the answer to it. Um, the, the degree to which people will be motivated to go out to vote in a situation like this is really unprecedented and unknown in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have examples from some of the provinces over the last year year or so, and I'm not sure what the turnout was in those provinces that have had elections. Um, but I think it's a really open question, in particular for, I've thought about, what about seniors in this in this election? I mean, they're obviously the most vulnerable people in the pandemic environment. They typically vote in much higher proportions than any other age demographic True. in the country. Seniors vote. And basically what 
the government is asking of seniors is drag yourself out to a polling booth. And, you, you know, these new protocols are in place, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, drag yourself out mm-hmm. to a polling booth and expose yourself, probably at least to some risk, for no particularly good reason, as far as I can see. I mean, I, I, as I said in that piece or implied in that piece, I see no justification on public interest grounds for this election whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's purely about trying to achieve a majority government to get around the accountabilities of minority government. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious to most observers of of federal politics. And so uh, whether this will be a high voter turnout because people will be motivated, maybe angry <laughs> that they've been forced to vote. Yeah or whether it'll be a low voter turnout because people don't want to take risks and they don't want to wait, like you say, in long lines to vote. I mean, I wasn't aware that the, that, that process is in place and that the lines are long. That's interesting to know. Yeah, it's slower. Uh, and if that gets around to the, you know, in the public consciousness, whether that's going to depress the vote, who knows? Yeah. I mean, this, this is an experiment in democracy, I would say, or in elections. Uh, in Canada to do this in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of at least here in Ontario and I think in Western Canada as well, a fourth wave, a so-called fourth wave, where case numbers are going up, not down. Yep. I think part of the calculation maybe of the government when they made this decision was we would be we would not be in that particular dynamic right now with the pandemic, but but that is the dynamic. Exactly. So, well, you know, it, 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 it's interesting you would you would mention seniors because my experience personally yesterday, just anecdotally, Eugene, at the polling place, 90% of the voters in the place were seniors. And I suspect mm-hmm. a lot of that having to do with who needs to deal with the crush of Election Day, especially when you've got four days of advanced polls. I'm hoping that, uh, that th- this will prove to be uh, an interesting and probably busy advanced poll polling exercise this time around uh, as far as uh, the as far as the notion of uh, uh, the need for uh, the election uh, the government i think was actually very much counting as you alluded to moments ago they were very much counting on this being simply a referendum on their management of the pandemic full stop how did we do we think we're doing great most people seem to agree all of the other parties have been very helpful in helping us do a great job Uh, and in fact as you pointed out earlier uh, many all of the other parties have set aside philosophical differences in order to get the management aspect of all of this up and running successfully but as far as this being exclusively a referendum on pandemic management not a chance, right? Yeah, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think you're right that that was part of their calculation, um, and it was a miscalculation, and they may pay a fairly heavy price for it. In terms of accomplishments that, uh, uh, now we've seen some encouraging job numbers in the past couple of days with respect to the economy uh, coming back to pre-pandemic levels. We're not there yet, but there are certainly stronger indicators that the economy is bouncing back. Uh, as, as, as we understand it, in previous years, and you've been there, Eugene, uh, part of the liberal government and minority and majority, and part of the election strategy, and this goes back decades, is to instill 
still a certain degree of fear or apprehension about what the other guy's hidden agenda might be. Historically, the liberals have found great ways to exploit the hidden agenda of their opponents, Stephen Harper being most recent. So this time around, I think the people of Canada have figured out that the hidden agenda is not in the conservative corner this time around. It's called Build Back Better. Reimagine capitalism, modern monetary theory. That's the hidden agenda of Christian Freeland. Yeah, well, they've got some fairly ambitious rhetoric for sure. Um, if you actually read their platform, it's not hugely impressive to me, but they've got some ambitious rhetoric about these sorts of things. Um, whether they would actually have the fortitude to deliver on some of these big ambitions. I mean, one of the other, you know, features of not just the Liberal Party, but other parties, you know, sometimes they run on big things and they get into office and these big things get carved back. Oh, yeah. Because the, rea- the realities of implementation and the challenges of implementation uh, come knocking on the door. I mean, this is one of the things that's frustrated governments for a long time on this pharmacare issue, which is still, you know, sort of on the agenda, even in this election. It's one thing to talk about it, but then when you're in the federal government in particular, how do you actually get it done? Right. Given the division of responsibilities and constitutional powers in this country, it's very, very difficult to do. So I don't know whether they would follow through as, in as grandiose a way as they're kind of talking, but yeah, I suppose you could say, you know, maybe there's a bit of a hidden agenda there. They want people to believe that they have a big agenda they have big ideas, and that they need a majority mandate to do that. Right. Um, I'm skeptical that they have really big ideas that require a majority mandate. I think they can get things done that need to get done in the short term. I also think the government should be looking at the next 12 to 18 to 24 months as the agenda, not the next five years, because we have no idea where we're going to be, as far as I can tell. In terms of the pandemic, excellent in the point. Next six, twelve to eighteen months, mm-hmm. and this is why I believe that the Trudeau go- government minority probably could have gone four years, which is almost—I don't think it's ever happened. The minority's gone that long, right? It probably could have gone four years if they just focused on let's get Canada through the pandemic mm-hmm. at the other end. If that was the agenda, it could have easily survived confidence votes going forward. If you add all these other things in, it gets a lot trickier. And my own view is right now that should be the focus. It should be short termism. You know, sometimes short termism makes sense. Right. In a pandemic like this, I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and that's kind of one of the things that's frustrated me about this. Trudeau is sort of talking sometimes like the pandemic's behind us. It's over. Well, we're all wearing masks still. We're all social distancing. We're getting vaccinated up the yin yang. And, you know, life is nothing like it was in 2019. The pandemic isn't over. That's right. It isn't over. Mm-hmm. nowhere near over and we may be going into a dark winter again who knows so focus on that give me build back better once this thing is clearly behind us or whatever you want to call it don't give it to me now it's too early that's my view and i think that's the view of a lot of canadians and if you would like to f- uh, read more about our guest's view, I would recommend popping over to theconversation.com and having a look at this piece rhetoric check parliament wasn't toxic 
Justin Trudeau just wants a majority. The author is our guest, Professor Eugene Lang from the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Eugene, thanks very much for getting us started off in fine, fiery form on a Saturday morning, sir. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. There's a a UBCM convention going on. It's the Union of British Columbia Municipalities. Now, typically, in many previous years, this is a gathering, of course, of all the municipal politicians from cities and towns, large and small, all over the province. They get together once a year uh, to discuss mutual issues and uh, enjoy uh, and share experiences and uh, hear a few speeches from politicians, that sort of thing. Uh, Last year's conference was virtual. This year's, it's going to be a little different. Still, it's not going to be the typical UBCM convention. However, they're certainly going to deal with a lot of typical issues. They've got a new uh, paper, a new policy paper organized this year. They're going to present to the convention and uh, hopefully have it voted in. Uh, The paper is entitled Ensuring Local Government Financial Resiliency. Today's Recovery and Tomorrow's New Economy. This from the Select Committee on Local Government Finances. The co-chair of that committee from the Caribou is Al Richmond. Mr. Richmond joining us now uh, before getting to the convention on a Saturday. Al, thanks for joining us and good morning. Good morning, and how are you this morning? I'm very well, thanks, Alice. Good of you to take some time to be with us. Uh, You've been involved in the Union of British Columbia Municipalities uh, for quite a number of years. In fact, you're a former president, right? Yes, I was. In 2016, I was president, yes. So tell us a little bit about, for those of us who are unfamiliar with the organization, you're a past president, you're pitching a a new policy paper to the convention today. Remind British Columbians of what UBCM is, Al. Well, the UBCM's over 100 years old. Uh, We have um, 100% membership throughout local governments in British Columbia, so that's uh, municipalities, villages, uh, regional districts, uh, and so it's it's a pretty pretty large organization and we are trying to be the voice of local government to other levels of government and take on issues that are of a provincial uh, interest to all our members. Um, we don't necessarily delve into individual uh, concerns of local governments but we deal with issues that are provincial in scope. Right. And and one thing, uh, you come from the Caribou area, uh, and you uh, found, uh, I'm again going back to stuff that I've done a little homework on you here, Al, and I know that you've learned a lot by being a part of and a representative to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities, and uh, we're asked, and I'm asking you again about it today, uh, this integration of urban versus rural uh, needs. Uh, big cities would appear to have very different needs than smaller towns and communities, and your experiences, well, not necessarily the dollars are different, but the circumstances are similar. Well, the, the, the circumstances are extremely similar. In fact, I think many people think that there's not an urban ho- housing crisis in rural British Columbia, and that's just not true. Okay. Many people think there's not homelessness in uh, rural British Columbia, and that's not true. Uh, the dollars you speak of, uh, from the years I worked with uh, UBCM and, and colleagues, for example, former uh, Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Greg Moore, I spent a lot of time with Greg because we co-chaired the uh, we co-chaired the efforts with the Strong Fiscal Futures in 2013. Mm-hmm. which was an effort to look at property tax uh, taxation and, and its inequities. And and what I really learned from from dealing with Greg, for the most part, and it, it, it may be oversimplistic, the, the 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 dollars are greater in the urban areas, so their their costs are higher, their revenues are higher. Sure. 
correspondingly in the rural areas, we we have costs and we have but we, and we have a small taxation base. So so it's difficult sometimes to be able to do some of these things that get get drifted down. But really, surprisingly enough, if you cut away all the the frills, you'll find that the a lot of the issues addressing that are facing rural British Columbia are the same as facing urban British Columbians. And and basically, sometimes you see those efforts, particularly we'll talk about healthcare. Mm-hmm. See that as a bellwether, what happens in the rural areas before it happens in the urban areas. And that's, just, for example, the shortage of doctors that we saw coming um, that's now well entrenched in, in the urban areas, the shortage of healthcare professionals. So uh, there's a lot of uh, similarities, and therefore there's, there's a lot of synergy between rural and urban. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a myth, but we still have people that want to have that rural-urban divide when, in fact, we're all British Columbians. As local local elected officials, we do our best to represent all British Columbians in a fair and equitable manner. Now, you mentioned a paper, Al, uh, called Strong Fiscal Futures that you produced back in 2013. Now, you've got a new one coming uh, this weekend, as a matter of fact, called Ensuring Local Government Financial Resiliency that you say builds a lot on that 2013 paper. What are the similarities between the two? What's the direction you established in 2013? that you'd like to see continuing going forward? Well, we were, we, we were uh, the paper we did in 2013, unfortunately, what, the, the province didn't engage on it, and so we're back. Uh, we, we think that paper stands itself, so we haven't touched that paper. It, it, it has a lot of examples and, and, and uh, other issues within it that are, are still relevant today, and so the, the paper, we're, the policy paper that we're working on right now is a look into the local government finance uh, system and the, the steps required for local governments to become fiscally um, sustainable it, because basically as we see it right now, property taxation is not really sustainable in its current form. Mm-hmm. The report has recommendations uh, that address three key areas. Um, first of all, attainable housing. Um, there's a challenge, in, again, rural and urban uh, with affordable housing for folks. Uh, community safety, policing, ambulance service, and all those things go, out, go with it. The, the drug abuse, uh, you know, even in my own community here, I live at 108 Mile Ranch. Um, we're picking up needles from from users on on our on our walkways. Wow, those aren't things that we're really set up to do as local government. So mm-hmm. we train a volunteer to do it. And we, we do a lot of work uh, trying to keep the community as safe as we can. And those are things that uh, spread out. So addictions, uh, they're all there. It's all over the map, and, and the similarities are great. The other one, of course, that's facing us all is climate change. And, and I believe that everyone saw um, the, the, the events this year uh, throughout the province where we were inundated with smoke. Uh, Caribou was hit very hard in 2017. Yes. Not as hard this year, but certainly my community again this year was on alert, but it wasn't evacuated. Uh, large fires, concerned about you know the, the global warming, uh, the lack of uh, the need for different forest practices to to address some of these issues. Find mm-hmm. all that in, in with respect to um, the costs of emergency management. We have a emergency operations center that's now running, and they used to run them for maybe a month, maybe maybe three weeks, maybe two months. Uh, with the fires today and the flooding, uh, we're running the one in the Caribou probably 265 days. Yeah, yeah, it, it's almost a full-time situation, isn't it? Exactly, and and the challenge is, is when the province decided that local government should do more of the emergency management and provide some small uh, fiscal help to do that. Um, it really it, it it 
it really makes it difficult for us to continue our day-to-day jobs because our folks, we, we, the, the local taxpayer pays to keep those people in those chairs in the EOC to keep that running. Uh, and the only thing that's compensated, uh, well, one of the things that's compensated by the province is, is the overtime piece. But the piece that isn't compensated that we can't address is the need job that has to be done therefore. So our utilities people, our bylaws people, our protective services people, they're not doing the managing of the 14 fire departments we have. They're right. not being able to do a lot of the other work that needs to be done. So that falls behind, and that's where uh, we, we, we want to engage the province on these issues. Al, I was going to ask you about it, and it's, it sounds it's a, maybe a simple-sounding question, but I just honestly don't know the answer, especially for a, 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 a regional or urban, uh, sorry, rural government. When a situation comes up, as is the case in your area in 2017, and certainly other areas of this province this year, when emergency situations, evacuations, etc., occur, and local governments are called upon to provide services in these urgent situations. Does the province reimburse the local government for the money that they had to spend on managing this crisis that otherwise would have gone to other priorities? Uh, well, again, the basic salary is your day-to-day operation, um, 8 to 5, we'll call it, or 9 to, nine to 5. Uh, there's, there's not compensation for that, but there is compensation uh, and we, we have to, to submit invoices. We get a, what they call a task number for Emergency Management BC that enables us to do the jobs. Okay. And money does flow from the province. So I don't want to leave the impression that the province of British Columbia and Emergency Management BC does not supply funding to do that. But I will tell you that the challenges sometimes getting compensated take years. That I do believe. To get uh, the money back. So when people go through invoices and people go through all these things, it takes time. So I, I understand one one of our uh, member municipalities is still waiting to get compensation for some work in 2017. Hmm. So, so, and there has been improvements since 2017. You know, we, we the, the province has made some changes and there has been some improvements, but there's more that needs to be done with emergency management in particular. Um, but that's only part of what we're dealing with. I mean, the issue really what we have here, we look at the new economy, uh, we're seeing um, uh, commercial buildings not uh, as, as populated as they were before, so True. values are going to fall. That's going to put more pressure on the on the residential taxpayer. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was a big pressure, a big pressure to put more onus on industry and business to pick, carry the tax load and get it uh, get it away from them rather, and put it on residential tax load. Well, that's not flying. We we're seeing a reduction, a further reduction in some of those, those commercial values. So that revenue is not there. And then we're having to, the only place that for the most part local government has is property-based taxation. And really should should the property owners be paying for all the things that we're doing. So for the for the drug abuse, for the homelessness, for the housing, and, and the challenges that are going to come with climate change. Because if we think climate change, is, change has been drastic in this, in this last year, mm-hmm. what we've seen with flooding and fires, I caution what's going to happen when it gets worse and the oceans rise and we have that facing the lower mainland and the issues of Delta. If you read the report in Delta just to deal with flood management and, and climate change, there's billions of dollars required to do that. So mm-hmm. we need to prepare and we need to ensure that the right level of government is taking care of the right the right pieces of it and that the funding is equitable because we don't, as local government, have access to um, royalties. We don't have access to, to that type of, of, of funding. We're basically uh, 
hindered uh, and, and constrained by property-based taxation. And, and if you talk to most taxpayers when they get their taxes in July, they're not happy with what no. they happen to pay. Um, and so we need to find a different way, new sources of revenue. And how do we capture the new economy? Uh, we have more and more online shopping going on. Those companies are not residents in our communities, but they're taking money out of our communities. That's right. How do we deal with that? Al Richmond is with us. Mr. Richmond from 108 Mile Ranch is the co-chair of the Select Committee on Local Government Finances at the Union of British Columbia Municipalities, the big convention coming up. Al, in previous years, and I can remember attending a UBCM convention many years ago now, was a bit of a bun toss, a bit of a party, a good atmosphere, some fiery speeches from local politicians, and everybody had a grand old time and got a few things done in the process. Uh, Last year was completely virtual. What's the story on the 2021 UBCM convention? Well, I think we've improved on the virtual reality, so we have a, a very exciting convention planned with uh, um, our, still our sessions, our policy paper sessions, our main resolution se- sessions that uh, our, our, our members bring forward. Um, and we're actually going to try a bit of a, um, a networking session uh, at this time. And I'm told uh, in my conversation with President Frankel yesterday that he's very excited about the reception we're going to have, the virtual reception we're going to have uh, on Monday evening. So, uh, it, it, you know, with COVID, we've, we've had to, uh, government and UBCM and all other organizations have had to sort of change how they do business and sure. try to find new ways. And I think, we've, uh, did, you know, staff has done an excellent job at moving us forward to try and maintain that face-to-face um, um, con- contact that we need so desperately, but it, it doesn't. Ex- it just doesn't replace the ability to chat in the hallway with your colleagues sure. and, and have a, a have that conversation to find out what are you doing. And I know some people think that uh, UBCM is is just a big party. Well, really, in a lot of cases, it's that conversation you can have in the hallway with someone about what they did about a particular issue. And um, when you get together, and it provides an opportunity for small communities to come in and them to learn, but as well as us to learn from them and the larger folks as to how they're managing uh, the situations they're facing. So it's it's really a, a, a large networking event where we do some policy, uh, we bring forward the concerns of the former resolutions to be passed on to senior levels of government right. for action. And uh, now you've already mentioned that uh, the three cost drivers that you're going to talk about are housing, community safety, and climate change. And these are, are issues that uh, municipalities of all sizes need provincial input and cooperation to, uh, to move forward on. But you've also mentioned a number of times in our conversation so far, Al Richmond, talking about the impact of the new economy on local governments. And you've mentioned especially relating to property tax systems. Talk to us more about it, Al. What is this new economy, especially as it affects the tax base of cities and towns of all sizes? Well, we, we, the way municipal governments, uh, local governments collect revenues is, particularly the non-residential property taxes and development charges, is based on the assumption around physical space required for employment. And as the nature of that work changes and the physical space requires uh, required changes, um, these assumptions are going to be challenged. Uh, we're, we're seeking uh, an economy where there's a, we're seeing an economy rather that's continually shifting toward from tangible to intangible assets. In other words, towards services and ideas and intellectual property, all underpinned by a digital technology. There's several implications on local government financing, which includes uh, more pressures for existing services, the basic services, on residential property taxes. 
This trend uh, reemphasizes the need to review the local government property tax system to make it fair, sustainable, and adaptable to the changing economy. So when the money leaves your community, you lose your business sectors uh, um, because it all comes in from Amazon. Our local post office here is inundated with Amazon parcels, which means the money's being spent. Sure. But there's no return to the local economy. There's no return to those still trying to provide, for example, in, in many cases, municipalities, roads. Sure. They still have to maintain the roads, still have to maintain a water system, still have to maintain a sewer system. We still have to have bylaw enforcement. We have building inspection. We have to maintain those things. And that money is not coming back. And as we lose businesses as a result of the new economy, um, it, it hurts. And so your, your commercial space is vacant. Um, and where are you going to get the money? Again, we're limited for the most part sure. constrained by property-based taxation, and the residents can only um, handle so much. And, you know, another thing I wanted to include in the conversation, simply from a management perspective, Al, is COVID-19. I mean, British Columbia has performed magnificently, uh, not only uh, compared to the rest of Canada, but compared to the rest of the world in terms of response, uh, sort of a, 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 a a united presence by way of response and so on. But it has been an enormous cost to cities and towns of all sizes, uh, infrastructure and, and, and so many other costs we don't, we're not even aware of. How, how massively has COVID impacted the ability of, ben, of British Columbia towns and cities to, to carry on? Well, it's, it's been an impact just from being able to, to converse with our residents. It's been a challenge uh, just to, if you want to have a public hearing and a rezoning application, we can't have we can't have mm-hmm. face-to-face anymore. Um, certainly the challenges of coming into the office for a while, we didn't, people weren't in the office, so the province, and the, they came up with funds to, so we could put shielding up so we could, so we could make our offices safer for our employees. Um, but uh, that debt that you referred to, I don't think we know what that debt is yet. Sure. So as we're talking to the province saying you need to look at how local government is funding, we're very cognizant of the challenges that they face at the same time uh, in dealing with this, right? So, so our our ask of the provincial government really is to we want to have an MOU with them to have them enter into a partnership with UBCM to look at our share mandates and to strengthen the local government finance system. And so, some people feel that the, we should have been very specific in the report. We need to get funding from here and here and here. And strong fiscal features provide an example of lots of sources of where different jurisdictions use for revenue from mm. the government. We want to have a conversation. So they have issues and we have issues. Some of those will be legislative changes. Some of those we have to look at ourselves and how we're doing business and perhaps change that or develop or utilize best practices in other locations in, 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 um, in, in, in other, other communities mm-hmm. to, to, make, to make ourselves better. So it's, we're looking to the provincial government saying we need to do something, but we at the same time, even the conversations we've had presenting to various area associations, there's a recognition coming out that we need to look at ourselves as well, and that's the key component to the partnership, to work together with the province to find some solutions so that we don't inundate our residential taxpayer and tax them out of their homes. That's right. We can't afford to do that. Al, um, finally, when is the convention, when does the convention actually happen, and can uh, ordinary citizens uh, view it on- online? Uh, they'll probably be able to do the highlights, but uh, not get, if you're not a registered <clears throat> participant, no, you won't be okay. able to do it online. So you'll you'll see the you'll see the coverage uh, soon, and um, um, our, our communication staff will do the best they can to provide that information. Um, uh, but given right now, no, normally the general public can't attend those sessions. Uh, and normally, it's a security issue. Right now, there's the again the bandwidth required to have a massive. Um, you have to control how many people are in there. Right. Uh, just the fact, particularly our folks in rural areas that are underserved by broadband, uh, 
you know, they, they just can't do these these things together. And with the COVID restrictions now, many of us are not going to the main office to deal with that. Where we sure. have better in this. Right? Well, we wish you considerable success and uh, hope that you get uh, accomplished what you and your select committee have identified as the important stuff to get done, Al Richmond. Thanks very much for joining us this morning and giving us a clue or two as to what's up. My pleasure, and have a good day, good day. Today is the Parkinson's Superwalk Day. A pleasure to welcome one of the hosts of the event, my chorus colleague Larry Gifford from the National Desk, joining us this morning. Larry, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So talk to us about the Parkinson's Superwalk. It's an awareness and a fundraiser all rolled into one package. Is it national or just local here in Vancouver? Oh, it's national. I just hosted the national uh, 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 pregame ceremonies. And then uh, coming up at 10 o'clock this morning on Facebook and YouTube, you can log into Parkinson's Society of British Columbia on uh, their, their, their pages. And we'll have a live uh, pregame ceremony to get you all pumped up for your walk today. Uh, people are, you know, you, you do what you can. Some people are fast walkers. Some people are long walkers, you know. I uh, I like to I like to be somewhere around. I'm a well, I'm a slow walker. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be in the back of the pack. But this is a virtual walk again this year because of COVID. Sure. Uh, but it's still it's it's a great way to get the community together and to to really you know, remind people that you can live well with Parkinson's and that we all we all have a lot of support. So is this the sort of walk where one pledges uh, by the kilometer or by the mile or by the measured piece of distance and every every um, measure you go, uh, the person uh, pops up some dough? That's usually the way it works. And do you get an actual pledge form at the website? Well, so you can donate straight on the website. You can uh, look up a person maybe that has already signed up or a team name and uh, and you could just do straight donations. Okay. Right? You, that way, we don't have to follow up with you. You just, you know, just write your check for a thousand dollars, Sterling, and we'll be good to go. Oh, it's just that easy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll take ten. We'll take twenty. We'll take. Uh, we'll take. We'll take a dollar. Every dollar counts towards, you know, living well with Parkinson's, and, and then also the important research that's being done. So ultimately, we can stop it in its tracks. Well, that's right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the research and what's being found out, because we, we do know that Parkinson's is, while it's, it's a disability, it's a neurological disorder, it is not fatal, as I understand it. So in terms of being a killer, so to speak, Larry, it isn't, and therefore doesn't uh, receive the sort of funding that other more, shall we say, urgent conditions do. Well, yeah, it's not a uh, it's not, it's not an immediate killer, uh, but they do keep stats on people who have died from Parkinson's. So apparently, it can. Okay, uh, it is a uh, it, it's a full body disease, really. I mean, they they see they've called it a motor a motor function disease. They've called it a neurological disease, but it really affects your your, your whole uh, the whole body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the research is is really amazing, and they're making great strides in figuring out how the the, the microbiome in your in your stomach maybe uh, connected to you know your brain. You know how when you feel nervous, you feel it in your gut. Mm-hmm. Well, but actually, just you, you actually you're feeling it in your brain, but it's you're it's sending a signal to your gut. That's right, the so butterflies uh, signals. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so they're connected, and so we're trying to figure out if there's a connection there. And then uh, you know it, it's I had a neurologist explain to me that they, it's like it's a crime scene. You know they they, they 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 know what's left here at the end, and they're trying to figure out well, how did they get here and what happened first and who's to blame and how can we eliminate whatever's happening because you've got proteins folding over and you've got you know, your uh, uh, dopamine producing brain cells are all dying. 
but we don't know what's causing what. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're just trying to be detectives and figure that out. One of uh, British Columbia's best-known uh, Parkinson's uh, people is Michael Fox, Michael J. Fox. You have some connection to him and his national committee in the United States. Michael seems to have been affected more profoundly than some others in terms of uh, the physical impact of the disease. Now, mind you, that's because we we know him and have known him since he was a kid and have watched him changed over the years. Is his case typical or is it more advanced than others? Well, think about this. Michael's had it for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, most people, uh, the average age of uh, Parkinson's onset is between 65 and 72. So mo- you haven't seen people 30 years in. Um, so, cause they usually die before that. Mm. So, cause, uh, so, so I would say for a, a, somebody with young onset Parkinson's like Michael or myself, uh, you're, it's going to be a long, uh, degenerative trip. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, you're, you're not getting that. You're not ever getting better. It's a constantly, it's a constant degeneration. Uh, and it's just a matter of how fast that happens. And he actually had, um, you know, a great career after, even after he was diagnosed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, but it's you know it's sure he's got he's got a lot of dyskinesia, which is related to some of the medication he takes, which is the shaking and the, the bobbing and the weaving and mm-hmm. sort of the, those awkward movements. Right. Uh, that's that's less of the disease and more of the medication, um, and it, because you need the, the, the dopamine replacement is important in order to do a lot of t- different body functions. So you're you're almost willing to have those strange movements in order for more things to work. Sure. Right. Right. So if it involves a certain awkward presentation, at least it's still all there. And no matter how awkward it might appear, it's still okay from the inside looking out, if you know what I mean. Yes, for sure. So when people want to find out more, parkinson.ca or parkinson.bc.ca are the two recommended websites. And again, Larry, one a couple of seconds here. Remind me of what they can see at these websites this morning. Uh, this morning, uh, you're going to see uh, right, right there on the front page will be all about the Superwalk, and you'll probably see a sketch of my face, which is really scary, uh-huh. but that's okay. <laughs> just, uh, just punch through You've it. You've been warned, friend. You need to go. <laughs> so the Parkinson Superwalk is taking place today. It's an awareness and fundraiser. Uh, Larry Gifford, one of the national directors of the, the program, uh, inviting us all to check it out at parkinson.ca. Larry, uh, you've got a busy day ahead of you. Uh, thanks very much for taking a moment to, to fill us in a little bit here on The Morning Show. Thanks, Sterling. I appreciate it. We love uh, taking time on this program and have since we began to celebrate and find those BC entrepreneurial success stories. And this one is a good one. We came across this in the Globe and Mail a while ago. BC legal technology provider Clio has made its second acquisition and largest ever. Uh, Clio, rather officially known as Themis Solutions, paid an undisclosed sum for my staff which is a San Francisco-based provider of software that automatically generates documents and provides e-signature services to legal professionals. With the deals, Clio has joined a swath of Canadian scale-ups, tech startups that have grown into sizable but still fast-growing entities that have evolved into acquirers. Yes, so let's talk about this amazing evolution of this British Columbia company. A pleasure to welcome Jack Newton to the program. Mr. Newton is the CEO and co-founder of Clio. Jack, good morning and thanks for being with us today. 
Good morning. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you with us and to celebrate this story. Tell us a little bit about Clio. Back us up a little bit, because I, I kind of uh, rushed the, the, the details. Take us back to the beginning. You're the co-founder. Take us back to the early days and what the original purpose was versus where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in a lot of ways, Clio is a, seems like an overnight success story, 13 years in the making. Mm-hmm. We, we founded the company back in 2008. Uh, actually, a childhood uh, friend of mine, Ryan Govro, and, and I founded the company in 2008. And this was when the, the cloud was really just starting to emerge mm-hmm. as a, a really transformative force in technology. And we, we were looking for an industry that we felt we could apply cloud technology to in an innovative and, and potentially disruptive way, and, and thought of legal as an ideal place to drive some of that innovation. And we, we felt in a lot of ways, legal was the last major industry to be fundamentally transformed, not just by technology in general, but by the internet in particular. And we, we really honed in on, on legal. We launched the first version of Clio back in 2008. Uh, and over the course of the last 13 years, Clio has grown into now a 650-person company. And uh, we just earlier this year raised uh, a Series E investment round of $110 million that valued the company at uh, $1.6 billion U.S. Well, now that there, and that's a very, congratulations, by the way. And that's where I, I wanted to stop you because, uh, again, I'm going back to this Globe and Mail article that brought you to our attention in the first place. Quote, Clio, with 650 employees and $100 million U.S. plus in annual revenue, joined the ranks of so-called unicorns, Jack, private companies that reach a billion dollars U.S. in valuation. So that's, uh, in 13 years, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, to be honest, a, a bigger success than, than Ryan and I ever imagined when we founded the company. We had very humble ambitions for what Clio might be back in, in 2008, but we, we struck a nerve. I think the legal industry is, is uh, good timing in the sense the legal industry was hungry for tools and technology that could help make it more efficient. Right. And what we've seen, especially in the last couple of years with some of the tailwinds from the d- disruption that, that COVID has really catalyzed in, in the industry, there's more and more lawyers looking for how they deliver legal services over the internet uh, because more and more clients are looking for legal services on the internet, they're they're trying to find lawyers online. They're trying to find lawyers in the uh, in the cloud. So this is a really key piece of how we're um, how we're thinking about innovating in uh, in legal and 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 disrupting. Uh, the traditional way of delivering legal services. Now, timing, of course, is everything. And here you are trying to start this brand new company, targeting a a market that you feel is underserved. Turns out you're absolutely right. But you're doing it at a time, 2008, when, oh, gee, the whole world is plunging into recession. How did that work out for you, particularly in terms of trying to raise venture capital, Jack? Well, I'll I'll tell you, we we knocked on a lot of doors uh, back in 2008, 2009, raising our our first round of of financing. And as as you pointed out, it was, uh, you know, the the depth of the the financial crisis of of 2008. Uh, It's it's hard to remember uh, just just how uh, down people were in those days, but people were legitimately worried about the financial system as we we knew it collapsing entirely. And and we, we got this really frustrating feedback when we were pitching Clio that, you know, it sounds like a great idea, but we're just we're just not writing checks right now. We got right. feedback that we had the best pitch and 
um, an amazing story, an amazing thesis that investors wanted to support, right. but they were really just battening down the hatches. So it was a, it was a very long and frustrating road uh, with, laced with, with a, a lot of no's uh, it, until we finally, and this is one of my, my favorite stories of, of Cleo's origin story, though the way we finally raised that, that initial round of uh, our, our million dollar Series A was actually through a a cold email from an investor in Germany that happened to come across uh, a blog post from a friend of mine uh, here in, uh, actually there was a friend back in Alberta that posted a, a blog post about Clio. He came across this blog post and sent us a cold email saying, this looks like an interesting idea. I just sold my internet company. I'd love to become an angel investor in Clio. Oh. Uh, and, and the great irony of, of that e- that cold email, by the way, was it went immediately to our spam folder because it looked probably like a, a Nigerian print oh, sure. uh, trying to scam us out of our money. And so we, we inadvertently, the, uh, the investor's name was Christoph Jans. Uh, he's now running a really successful uh, venture capital firm called Point Nine uh, Investing Investments. Uh, he, we inadvertently cold played or slow played him by ignoring this inbound email. He followed up again uh, a couple of weeks later and said, I, I, "I just want to reiterate, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in potentially investing in Clio. Uh, we happened to stumble across this uh, th- this email in our spam folder. Replied to him, and and he ended up leading that first investment round back in late 2000 and 2008. So- uh, and then and then we started eventually on the. The incredible bull run that has been the the last thirteen years in technology. So, that first million dollars of fundraising was was definitely the hardest, uh, and we, we've had a much easier time raising money uh, as we've demonstrated traction uh, against this this backdrop of of this uh, this incredible growth in technology investment over the last thirteen years. Well, there you go. Once you've got that traction and the ability to produce data and a track record and something investors can measure, well, then it's a whole lot easier. But it's a funny story, Jack. I mean, a guy sends you an email that goes to your spam box, you miss it, and then two weeks later he sends you another email saying, basically, take my money, please. That's and, a great it, story. You know, you're, you're right, and it goes back to that mac- maxim: the, the 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 easiest way to raise money is if you don't, if you at least look like you don't want to raise money, and, and investors just just get all, all the more excited about potentially investing if if you say you don't need their money. So may, maybe that's the takeaway of the story. I don't know if it's you know don't look too eager or or check your spam folder and hope there's good news in there. So when you made this new acquisition, you've just bought this San Francisco company called MyStacks, which is also another software company that is involved in uh, software for specifically for the legal profession. So you would acquire this company, Jack, why? Because they provided a degree or a dimension of service that Clio up until now didn't. So you've expanded your range of service. What was the, the motivation behind the acquisition? Yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, maybe clarify what the company does a little bit first, just okay. to, to set the stage for that discussion. The, the company is called Lawyaw, and uh, the, the, the the parent company is, is MyStack, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. Lawyaw is a, a Y Combinator backed company, so they're, they're they're supported. Their their initial investment round was from one of the the best known seed investors in in the United States, and and they were doing a phenomenal job of building innovative technology around document automation and e-signatures and court forms. Okay. And, and, and this is an area that is deeply interesting to Clio, where we've traditionally focused on practice management software, which is really oriented around how do you run your law firm, the operational parts of tracking your time and billing your clients mm-hmm. and collaborating with your clients. 
But we've always been interested in the document space because the documents, if you think about it, are really the the atomic unit of work of the legal industry. When you think about what are the what are the inputs and outputs of a typical law firm and even a typical lawyer, a lot of it orbits around around documents. Sure does. And, and at the same time, a lot of how lawyers work with documents looks a lot like in the year 2021, uh, the same way it did in the year 1980. You know, there's, there's still Microsoft Word files and in some cases even WordPerfect files that are being shuttled around by, by email, uh, and, and there's really not a sophisticated set of tools to automate many of the workflows around documents. And, and that's what LawYaw identified as a huge opportunity was that we could modernize and automate many aspects of how lawyers work with documents. Uh, we've all probably had personal experience with just how effortless and, 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 and seamless e-signatures make the, the signature process as opposed to wet signatures. Still getting used to that myself. It's a treat, <laughs> isn't it? It, 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 it? it sure is a treat. And you feel like you're, you know, a record is, is screeching anytime you get a request for a, a wet signature that you need to find a way to print a document and, and scan it and so on. So, so yeah, e-signatures are just, I think, a flavor, <coughs> excuse me, a taste of what this, um, what this ultimate opportunity for document automation looks like. LawYa has spent the last few years building an incredible team and an incredible technology stack to enable uh, intelligent, do- intelligent, intelligent document workflows and automations. And uh, we've known this company for, for, for years. I know the founder. I've gotten to know him. Uh-huh. And, and they've built, the, the, by the way, they've built their technology platform on top of Clio's overall API platform. We have an app store and LawYaw is one of our uh, one of our deepest and best integration partners as well. So there was a there was a longstanding relationship there, both on a, a business, technology, and and personal level. And uh, and 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 we approached them uh, earlier this year about the idea of of combining. And what they saw, and then what we saw was the the shared opportunity to accelerate both of our visions of how we want to impact the legal industry make it more efficient, make legal services ultimately more accessible to consumers. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and, and chose to combine our companies. And, and our overall M&A strategy, uh, LawYaw is actually our third acquisition. We've, we've been on a pretty fast pace and, and just uh, did two acquisitions in the last two months. Uh, what, what we've been doing with our M&A strategy overall is, is really what, what I describe as a product-led growth strategy where we're not necessarily buying what well, we're absolutely not buying Companies or assets that are, are just financially interesting or financially accretive, really look, we're, we're really looking for companies that add foundational value right. okay. uh, to our customers and help accelerate our product roadmap. So if we're looking at an acquisition that otherwise we, we would have been able to deliver some product capability to our customers, say, in, in three years, but with this acquisition, we would be able to deliver it to them in six months. That's the kind of acquisition that's going to be super interesting to us because we feel like it's accelerating our ability to deliver value to our customers and accelerating our ability to, to realize our vision, uh, which is really oriented around our, our mission statement, which is tr- to transform the legal experience for all, which is really all about making legal services more accessible for consumers and, and eliminating the friction 
that exists around, uh, in, in, in many cases, interacting with the legal system for consumers. Our guest is Jack Newton. Mr. Newton is the CEO and co-founder of a British Columbia company called Clio, uh, which has just made a couple of uh, acquisitions lately. And in fact, Jack was descri- describing the M&A strategy. Uh, so obviously, there's, there's, a, there's a format that you have in mind in terms of enhancing your company's ability to provide service to the legal profession, and quantum leaps would be recommended every every possible opportunity jack now that you you've been there you uh, you were out there 13 years ago cap in hand looking for startup money a lot of people are still doing that in 2021 you're one of those targets now that would be approached a lot so you have an m&a strategy you know what you're looking for do you get a lot of submissions yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of uh, interest in, in in being acquired by Clio. Frankly, there there's a lot of very interesting companies doing innovative things in the legal space that would that do view, rightfully so, Clio as a great partner for unlocking their their potential. What what we have with Clio is is an audience of 150,000 plus legal professionals on our platform that are are savvy to technology they understand the value of the cloud mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it's the biggest call it pre-vetted audience of of technology savvy customers lawyers on on the planet that that already understand the value of what technology can deliver to their practice and to their clients so there's in many cases one plus one equals three or more kind of math that exists around uh, one of these companies combining with Clio and, and unlocking huge latent opportunity for for their product, their innovation, thanks to opening it up to our our customers and the channel that that represents. Sure. So so we need to be you know ultimately really fairly um, selective in in which of those companies we we work with because it, it you, you don't want to get stretched too thin in terms of this M and A strategy and, and integrating these companies and technologies. And people uh, behind the technology is 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 a challenge. It's, it's non-trivial, and you need to get it right if you're not going to destroy value in, in in both companies. So we need to be selective about who we're going to work with on that front. But there's certainly a lot of companies putting putting their hand up, looking for mm-hmm. that opportunity, I'll and, bet. and, and, yeah. and we're, we're humbled by that. It's a really exciting stage of growth to be at. I'll bet it is too. Now, what about the other side of that coin, Jack? What about being snapped up by some? Trans global mega national big deal outfit, um, and and it's and sorry you're, you're referring to Clio being yes, potentially yes. acquired by a, 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 that kind of company. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly something that that I think about, and we've we've actually encountered. We've had some of those global mega corps uh, approach us in the past and uh, and look to acquiring us. And and what I've always been really focused on with the Clio story is, frankly, swinging for the fences and and trying to build an enduring generational company right here in BC. And I, I think one of the uh, the sad things about the aspect, of some of what we've seen in the Canadian technology landscape over the last 20 years is too many early stage companies selling out to uh, a, a U.S. competitor right. or a U.S. company and, and just having their, their growth nipped in, in the very early stage of their, their growth journey. And, 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 you know, frankly, we need more... Clio's, we need more Shopify's that that are really building these these large enduring companies in in Canada, and and I hope to see Clio become one of those. I think we're we're on our trajectory there, and and I've always had my sights set on on building uh, a long term company. We talk internally about 
building a hundred year company and and how do we build the foundations for that kind of of longevity and and uh, I'd really like to see Clio become a a standalone company or, or remain a standalone company that, that perhaps eventually becomes a, a publicly traded company. Oh, okay. But, but, but not, uh, we've never built the company to be uh, acquired. Oh, okay, because I, I was just going to ask you that. I've literally got 30 seconds here, Jack, and the last question was going to be about being public. Are you planning to take the company public? Uh, that's something that's certainly on, uh, I would say, the range of possibilities for how Clio evolves. That we're, we're extremely well capitalized today. We've got a lot of investor interest and a lot of capacity to fundraise if we need additional money. So there's no urgency for us right, to, for shareholder to become money. a right. publicly, publicly traded company. But that is certainly something that we could see as, as being one of the trajectories for the company. And, and I think one of the things that would support this objective of, of being a, a very long-term company. So uh, stay tuned. We, 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 we may be talking more about that in the, uh, in the next year or so. Well, if it comes up, uh, I would like the opportunity to have that uh, moment on the radio with you when you get to make some kind of announcement about this. It'd be an awful lot of fun to be a part of that conversation, too. We do enjoy very much, Jack, highlighting and showcasing BC entrepreneurial success stories. We're delighted to share yours with our listeners this morning, and we wish you continued great success. Thanks for having me, Sterling, and I'll, I'll certainly uh, be happy to come back on the show with uh, more news in the future. We'll look forward to that. Thanks again, Jack. Have a great day. There's Jack Newton, the CEO and co-founder of Clio, C-L-I-O. Google them. They're a unicorn, you know. That's it for our show today. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Have a great Saturday.